0: Everybody, Welcome to Wrappin' with Reef Bum. I'm your host Keith Berkelhammer and today I welcome Joe Caparata who is the owner of Unique Corals, which is a wholesale and retail facility in California. Joe also started Manhattan Aquariums which is a retail store and service and maintenance company in New York City and Joe is the co-owner of Marco Rocks. Joe I did not uh, know this um, and he has also written about the reef keeping hobby and has been a guest speaker at conferences. I'm really psyched to have Joe as a guest. Joe, man, welcome to the show.
1: Nice to meet you. Uh, nice, nice to be here.
0: Yeah. Nice to meet you all. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, nice folks, uh, I know you're uh, you're fine in the stream and what have you, and this is a really awesome opportunity. We've got um, um, a, a great guest on the show tonight, so feel free to ask a lot of questions as we kind of get into the dialogue. But Joe, I got a lot of questions for you myself. Okay, And we're going, to, um, we're going to show some video of, of Unique Corals. You, you did a little um, behind-the-scenes tour for us. But um, before we kind of get into all that stuff, I always like to ask my guests, uh, you know, how they got started in the business or the hobby.
1: So, uh, Joe, what's, uh, what's your story? My story, um, I started getting into aquariums when I was about 10 years old. Um, my grandfather was a full-time fisherman in Cape Cod Bay. He had lobster pots. He, oh, uh, wow commercial fishing uh he was a welder and then when i was born he started doing more and more fishing so that's the grandfather i knew so every year we'd go up to cape cod i'd spend summers with him and fishing and i guess i just loved the ocean i got my first aquarium at 10 i would enjoy going to ponds and local creeks and try to fill it i was not good at keeping fish alive then then a new store opened up in my neighborhood, and it was called Ecosystem Aquarium. It was a, a Chinese individual. He owned it, a very nice guy named Perry Yang, and I would ride my bike there every day after school, and he offered me a job, and it was $3 an hour, and I rode my bike every day, 13, 14, 15 years old, and then a woman came in and told me she wanted me to clean her fish tank, and her husband had just had a stroke, and she would pay me $20 to clean her freshwater tank, and little did I know, but... That would become my first aquarium in, a, I don't want to use the word empire, but a, a giant aquarium <laughs> service company in New York City. So I would ride my bike to her house and I got very friendly with her and she referred me to somebody else and I started my own service company. And I realized soon that I could make more money doing private work than I could working for a fish store. So I set my sights on building this company while I was in school and while I was in college. And before I knew it, I had about 20 accounts. Uh, most of them paying between 50 and 100 dollars each and um, from there the rest is history I kept snowballing into larger and larger spaces took on a partner uh, ended the partnership uh, amicably and uh, I eventually moved into New York City where I, I tried to really dominate New York um, right now we have about 18 employees there about 200 accounts um, the store is still running there I still go back and forth right now it's tough with covid um, but from that and trying to be true to my business connections and friends, I was able to spawn off multiple businesses from that uh, just by networking through the industry. And today I think I have uh, five, five businesses and uh, about 50 employees. And um, I enjoy what I do. I work with aquariums every day. And I'm fortunate enough to sit in my own fish room here, which is a converted garage. And I'm surrounded by a bunch of empty tanks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you're going to give us a little tour of that fish room as well.
1: Uh, yeah we'll show you it
0: (laughs) so hold it Uh, you got uh unique corals yep manhattan aquariums yep marco rocks what are the other
1: two um unique corals solomon islands which is a company in um uh solomon islands Haniara. it's been there for about a year and a half we have a facility now on the water and we have local farmers who grow corals i partnered with an ex-employee tim kelly who's been living there for a year and a half he's back now with covid uh, because of COVID, he doesn't have COVID, and as soon as we get the green light, we will start resuming uh, shipping corals from that area. And then uh, I also am partners with a company called Delua. We sell and distribute uh, Illa lights, uh, Delua great white skimmers, and then we run the Triton lab. Isan and I have a Triton business uh, where we do we do uh, all the testing. So it depends how you break it down, five or six businesses.
0: Uh, well that that is uh, pretty freaking impressive there joe in terms of having your hands in so many uh, different businesses i you know i just have this one business and and i find myself a little overwhelmed
1: at times so i don't know how you do it with, with five <laughs> <laughs> it is overwhelming believe me especially when you got to go to florida or go to new york and i have I have two young kids too and a wife and uh, i try to give them as much time as i can so you have to you have to not sweat over the small issues and you have to not micromanage and trust your people and look at the month as a whole and not look at the bad days as long as you're having 25 good days and five bad days you're doing well something like that.
0: So let's let's talk about Manhattan Aquariums because as you said that's kind of like how you got your start really um, um, in in the uh, the reef keeping world right in terms of uh, your your first business so that's kind of like where it started off for you and um, you know, before we, um, we had a, a pre-call and, and you and I were talking, I mentioned to you that um, you know, I used to live and work in the New York City area, and, and my office was, I don't know, maybe a 30-minute walk to uh, Manhattan Aquariums, and on a Friday, you know, slow Friday during lunchtime, I would absolutely enjoy taking a, a nice walk to, uh, to check out Manhattan Aquariums because there weren't really a lot of other stores and other options around to check out around the midtown right. Manhattan area. I don't think there were any other than, um, you know, these, uh, like, um, chain retail stores in that area. Yeah. There used to be some stuff down in, in, uh, Greenwich village, uh, in, in terms of some nice reef, you know, uh, coral selections and fish and, and what have you, but nothing like Manhattan aquarium. So I always used to enjoy, uh, going there and checking out the, uh, the display tanks and you guys, you know, certainly I haven't been there in a few years, but, um, just talk to us a little bit about how, um, You know, that that all came to to be in terms of what it is today.
1: So that's so that facility was um, it it took a couple of uh, iterations before I could actually justify the expense of a ground floor retail business there. And uh, one of my service clients who became a friend of mine uh, said that his landlord had some rent on a fourth floor space in New York City. It was only like nine hundred dollars a month. Uh, it was maybe 700 square feet but it was enough for me to get my foothold into New York City where I could then respond to emergencies and market as a New York based service company. I realized that a lot of the competition needed to project their strength into the city and that was a weak spot. So by having a, a home base in the city I was able to to grow the company a little bit faster. So after a couple of years I moved to a third floor space and then I rented the basement and then I was tired of having floods that would drain down into the tenants below Um, And I said, damn it, I got to move and get a ground floor space. So I uh, hired a real estate agent and we found a spot on 37th Street and it was perfect. Had a parking lot, basement, I put all the filtrations, penetrated the floor, put all the display tanks upstairs, and that was in 2005. But the service and installation business is really the lifeblood of, I think, most saltwater Retail aquarium shops these days. Um, I mean, of course there's exceptions to that, but uh, I think new businesses, you'd be, you'd be hard pressed to find one that's doing really well without a service arm to bring in the revenue. It's a very cash positive business, especially if you own the vehicle, uh, if, the, if it's owner operated and you're charging, you know, hundred, 130 an hour to do services, you know and you, you could do the math pretty quickly you could rack up some some good income of course you have to be good and not be running around fixing issues but so that's what we did we built the service arm and used the store as the backbone of the service and also used the display room to to support the marketing and getting new accounts and then it turned into a 7 day a week uh visit for for you know for people to come in it was very hard competing with the online businesses um, and I knew that. And you can't really survive if you're charging more than what somebody could buy it for online. And I know there was a big resistance for years, and people justified, "Well, I have my store. I pay my rent. I need to charge. Or I need to charge." That's fine. But when a customer looks at their phone and it's 30% less, you know, you're 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 not going to win. So you have to sell the service and sell the fish and sell other things, but compete with online, uh, you know, very head-on. So uh, at what point in time did,
0: did you um, say to yourself, you know, okay, Manhattan uh, Aquariums is doing well, and um, I don't know in terms of the, the chronological order in terms of when, when you started your businesses, but at, at
1: what point did you um, come up with the idea for Unique Corals? So I'll actually take it back a little further. It's actually New York Aquarium Service was formed in 2001. That was my service business. And then in 2005, when I opened the store, I called it Manhattan Aquariums. They're both corporations that are active today. Um, we operate most of our work now under Manhattan Aquariums, but in 2007, 2008, I started to see a surge in online WYSIWYG corals. People were taking corals and cutting them up. I was like, oh, my God, this is crazy. I need to do this. So I started Unique Corals with a couple of employees, and unfortunately, I learned a very valuable lesson about people and characters then. Um, the employees all kind of got together and, and left at once, and oh, they and dry. It's okay, you know, that's, it's a, a lesson it hurt at the time, but it was an education for me. Um, and so I shut down the business. I had no photographer, no bagger, no nothing. I was running around doing installations and service. So I said to myself, one day I'm going to open this company, I'm going to do it right. I'm going to do it in the West Coast where I can bring in the corals, not have to buy them from people in California, and I'll also support my East Coast business by bringing them through L.A. because L.A. is the hub. And so around 2012, the business was strong enough where I could actually leave it. So I'm sorry, I misspoke. So from 2008 to 2000, 2010, Unique Corals was born in the basement of Manhattan Aquariums. We set up a bunch of 92-gallon raceways. We did our photography. The website was good. Sales were good. Everything was good until uh, the employees decided they would start their own business. Um, and then from 2010 to 2012, it was shut down. In 2012, I rolled the dice. I let my staff run Manhattan Aquariums, and I moved to the West Coast and uh, leased a giant facility. Uh, I did it at the time with Scott Fellman, and then I bought him out a couple of years later. And um, I, it's been solo owned by, by myself uh, ever since.
0: Well, I tell you, that takes a lot of guts to um, you know to do what you just did in terms of you know. Well, you know, if you got trustworthy employees, then I guess you can kind of. Take that risk and, and go out and start that uh, business, but um, you know that does must must have taken a lot of courage to do that, um, given the, yeah. uh, the the pause you had in the business before. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Joe um, shot a little behind-the-scenes tours of tour of, of unique corals. So what what I'd like to do, Joe, is let's play that. You you uh, you narrated through that, but then when uh, when it's done, we'll um, okay. we'll come back and we'll talk about it. So let me, okay. let me roll the video. Okay.
1: Hey guys, five Joe Caparata here, Unique Corals. I'm doing a quick and dirty video of our facility. Um, we've been here since 2012, and we import a lot of cool coral, and now a lot of dry goods. Uh, Triton, uh, Destaco, Pax Bellum, Pantheri. We also distribute marker rocks. And uh, we've got our Triton lab here. Let me show you that one. And this is... Abraham getting ready to do uh, today's batch tests, and that's the machine. A lot of work goes into uh, making sure it's right, everything's calibrated. We can run up to 50 samples in one day, and the machine runs for about 12 hours every time we uh, we do tests. We were sending them to Germany, but now we uh, we bought the machine and we do it here with, with Isan. He does all the, the hard work, all the programming, and all the interpretation of data. And uh, typically when we get samples in, we're firing up the machine that night and people are getting their results the next day. So we went from a five to 10 day lead time to now really the next day or 48 hours after we receive it. So that's that. We've got our admin offices over here. I don't wanna show you all the boring stuff. I know you wanna see coral, but we'll do a quick detour. I've got the orange gel lens on, so everything looks a little bit off, but every day we send out a bunch of orders, wholesale, retail, a lot of live coral. This is an order, uh, a little messy but getting ready to go out uh, some triton stuff and we've got a lot of triton here everywhere you see is triton there's uh, a lot of uh, Pax Bellum there's the Staco, and it's actually way too thick and and, and busy over there to look so let's just go around and look at some coral We've got our fish system over here uh, this is just stuff that we do like for service accounts and for Some wholesale people, we bring in some fish with our corals and we sell to them. Uh, We've got six of these raceways. Each one is 2,000 gallons, and they're 30 feet long, two feet high, and four feet wide. We've got an area over here that's uh, our aquaculture grow out that's off limits. Uh, We just redid the plumbing all that, so there's only a few corals. Nothing you guys are gonna miss. Uh, There's, um, most of the raceways are Pretty packed with coral. Unfortunately the lights are really blue now because it's coming at, to the end of the day. So um, they're gonna go dark in another hour or so. But there's a, a lot of coral here. You can see we've got really nice Favia and Montes and also green star pollen. Finally getting some nice mariculture stuff in. These are green trumpets. And uh, these systems are all pretty much full. Raceway 5 is a little kind of half empty. Uh, these are acro frags this is our online inventory so this is everything that's been cataloged and photographed this is all WYSIWYG so everything over here is uh, is going up online or is already up online and, um, those chalices. we run the Stocco calcium reactors on the systems that's our main alkalinity and calcium uh, monitoring uh, we do our own ICP testing in-house and then we spot, dose, and correct for any elements that are deviating from the set points that we need. Um, we've got, I'll show you some fun stuff over here. They're all G4 Radion lights, really good lights. They, they get the job done. And there's just so much to look at in here. A lot of cool coral, all right, know a lot this of mariculture stuff over here. That's our water treatment system over there. We've got RO, DI, you know the Testaco doing its thing. Uh, we just set up these MRC uh, react uh protein skimmers with the triple cone washdown. Kind of a cool feature. Yeah, I'll plug it in for you guys real quick. So we've got three of these units running already. We've had them since 2012 in their workhorses. And we finally bought three more. So this is a timer right here that is going to turn this blue line pump on that will automatically wash down the entire top of the skimmer. And I literally just got this thing up and running, so it just needs a little bit more time to break in. This one, as soon as I get one more fitting, this will be done. And the way these work, again, this is a quick and dirty, I'm just talking from what I see. Got a Varios pump, does about 800 gallons an hour, it pumps up into the unit, it goes into here, and then a big MRC pump with a really cool needle wheel impeller grinds up the water and air through a blue venturi hose and that recirculates so you have a lot of dwell time to really build up the organic load and it really makes the skimmer work much better and then the third pump here is the uh is the washdown. you can see there's another skimmer there and then there's three more in the back that are running and i don't want this video to be too long so i'm going to cut it here but um thanks for watching and i look forward to the live stream so
0: I'm gonna leave you guys with some cool coral candy. Wow, Joe, that um, that's pretty friggin' cool, man. I love seeing stuff like that. So, so who, who uh, you know who designed that whole thing? Was that was that you? Did you kind of collaborate with the uh, the folks that work at Unique Corals? I mean, is go ahead. Uh, I got a couple of questions for you.
1: So, <clears throat> I guess you could say most of that has been there since we started it in 2012 There's definitely stuff the raceways i found the skimmers i wanted to use Rogers skimmers on it so most of that is my design but the guy that actually built the facility his name is chilo and he's built a lot of the wholesale import companies in in los angeles um maybe sdc quality marine pacific i mean he's well known going in and doing everything like turnkey operation he's a bull. He's a hardworking guy. Um, so he really did most of the plumbing there. Once I realized that he could handle it, I was able to focus on other things. So that, that was, that was great. And then over the years we've realized that we need to change this. We need to change that. And some of my new employees over the last few years have really opened my, my eyes up to changing things and doing things a little different. Um, and so I credit my staff. Um, I won't take you know credit myself. It's definitely a group effort, uh, to get the facility where it is now for sure.
0: So how often do you do you guys, um, you know, re-evalu- reevaluate what you're using in terms of equipment? So for the lighting you're using, the Radeon G4s, you know, is, has there been talk about uh, upgrading to the G5s? You know, when, when do you guys kind of make the move? There's always so many um, um, innovations in terms of new equipment yeah. that's out there. And yeah. obviously you have a, a large facility. So to make change
1: would be um, most likely expensive, I would think. Yeah. You know, so how, how do you guys handle that sort of thing? So the biggest problem for us was when we designed the facility, we used what was available in 2011, 2012. It was big AC pumps, the RK2 pumps, uh, big heaters, big chillers. We're talking about a lot of volume of water and metal halide lights and T5s. So our ambient water, our water temperature ran at around 85, 86. The facility was at 77, 75. So it goes to show when you're running a one horsepower pump, and a big pump on the skimmer, and you're using metal halide lights that are close to the water, even T5s, you put a lot of that heat energy into the water. So therefore, you have to cool it with heating and cooling. So our electric design was crazy. I mean, it was really intense, and there were days where we would blow the panel, you know, with just too much power. Um, So that was very hard. Only recently when we switched to the G4 lights, and then I switched to all the biz pumps, The systems are running at a degree above the room temperature. Mm. So I realized I did not need the heaters, and I did not need the chillers. We invested in better room air conditioners with heaters built in. They were gas-driven, our electric bill went down. We controlled the ambient temperature, closed up the vents in the ceiling that allowed the place to breathe, and invested in dehumidifiers to keep the humidity reasonable and comfortable. And now it's at a 78 degrees all year round with 25% humidity. And no heaters, no chillers. We pulled them all off. We don't have any blackouts now. Uh, a lot less power consumption. Um, you know, the air conditioner runs more, but, but that's okay. So the G5s, we definitely want to switch to them. Um, but right now we're having a lot of success with the G4s. So we're not, we're not, uh, we don't have to do it, you know, anytime soon. When, when, when they're available, the price is right and we, when we can justify the purchase, we'll do it. So you you
0: uh, you showed the uh, the calcium reactors there you're using for that facility in terms of the uh, the calcium alkalinity supplementation. What do you guys like to keep your uh, key parameters at, like uh, alkalinity and, and calcium, magnesium, phosphate, nitrate? What what are your uh, targets there for those types of
1: parameters? So we're keeping DKH around 8.5. Um, that's where the system seemed to be pretty stable between eight and nine. Uh, calcium is 450. Magnesium's 1370. You know. Uh, all the normal parameters as far as the major ions. So uh, specific gravity, 1.026. We try to keep our phosphates between 0.02 and uh, 0.10. We find just keeping that sweet spot controls algae, allows the corals to have the nutrition they need, and, um, and they grow really well. And then for the nitrate, we're keeping it around 5 to 10 ppms. Sometimes it gets a little bit higher, and we don't really see an adverse effect. But I do believe it's, it's best to keep your PO4 and your NO3 you know, as balanced as you can. Um, so those, those are the parameters we shoot for. And we, we do notice that with the bright lights, they really consume nutrients. So we even have to dose nitrogen. So. So what, what do you
0: guys use for and and I apologize if I didn't notice this in the uh, in the video because you and I were talking during the video while you're running. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So uh, but uh, in terms of nutrient export,
1: what are you guys using? Right now it's we really actually have a problem getting nutrients in because it's such a heavily they're heavily stocked coral systems. So we're not in a in a situation where we have a lot of fish and a high bio load that we have to export nutrients. So if anything we're adding nutrients, huh. but we do water changes. You know, we'll do water changes to freshen it up. Um, it's just easier on a commercial system like this. We have two valves. We always have about 1,000 to 2,000 gallons of salt water on tap. Um, and we have a lot of hands that go in and there's hand sanitizer and creams and, you know, corals getting fragged. So we just find on a commercial system doing water changes is, is really good. And then maybe somebody watching that says, oh, I've heard you say in a talk that – You know, for Triton, you don't do water changes. Well, those are two different methodologies, and water changes are never bad. But if you can run a system without it, then you can keep that tool in your toolbox and not introduce the variables that sometimes come along with it. And I can get into that too. But for us, we found that doing water changes seems to be be pretty important. We can also suck out the detritus that grows under the racks. So there's several reasons why we want to do water changes.
0: And you guys are, you know, you got the uh, the big uh, protein skimmers, so that's certainly uh, carrying some of that load in terms of the export. Yes. So uh, yep, absolutely. Joe, talk about, uh, let's talk more about Triton, because you showed the Triton lab. You, you have a, uh, there is a Triton lab now in your facility, you need corals. Yes. And, um, and and that's, that's that's relatively new in terms of being able to now send um, um, you know water samples to a lab in the u s and, and be able to get much quicker turnaround time on, on the uh, the ICP testing but but let's let's talk about um, Triton and and what it's all about and why ICP testing is important and and, uh, and then we, we could also circle back in terms of what we were talking about before in terms of um, the um, option to use Triton. Um, Supplements versus doing
1: the actual triton system. Okay, so triton. I'll give a quick quick history I always like to talk a little bit about the foundation I feel it it helps people to understand things better. Um, I got invited by Jake Adams in 2014 to go on a dive trip in Indonesia to the the Flores Sea Um, We're gonna go to Komodo and see the dragons and do about 10 days on a liveaboard on that boat was Vincent Chalius from Bali Aquarium and Isan Dashti and his wife Linda And we all spent about 10 days on this little Indonesian boat. Um, That's a whole story in itself. But um, it was amazing diving, uh, a a lot of cool diversity in in those Indonesian islands. But every night I got to pick Isan's brain. And Isan is the founder of Triton. And he was the first to take an ICP machine, which everyone says you never want to put salt water in. Um, And he was the first to really use it for for reef keeping, to see the parts per billion and parts per million of all the trace elements that we say do good things in our reef water. So he perfected it. He came up with his own method and he adapted it by making changes to the machine to, to benefit the, the reef aquarist, the hobbyist, that's the heart of it. And that spawned a need for really good supplements, pure supplements, pharmaceutical grade, without contaminants that you can see in the machine. And it, and it spawned this organic, holistic approach of reef keeping that reduced variables, increased predictability. The less you do, the easier it will be to get to your target. So you start designing a system that can do a lot of the things for you, and you don't rely on this and you don't rely on that. You don't rely on water change that could have problems with your RODI system or the salt's bad or they have a hot spot of elements, hot spot of elements in it. And what you're left with is this – The basic needs of the coral, setting up an algae-based system to export the nutrients, and that algae bed is larger than the the tank's need. The tank can, let me back up, the algae bed's needs are greater than what the tank can give it. So you basically turn the theory on its head that the filter is supporting the tank, the tank is actually supporting the filter. Mm. You've got this giant algae bed saying, feed me, feed me, feed me, and what you're left with is really low, really steady uh, nitrate and phosphorus and even carbon and you're getting trace elements that are being released by the algae and it's also a bleeding ground for all kinds of little organisms that the reef needs and then your waste is exported through that algae bed and by a protein skimmer and now with ICP testing you can know exactly what your water needs because every tank is a little bit different The deviations can be corrected through ICP testing and hobby kit testing. So basically, Triton method is setting up a natural system, an algae-based system, no ozone, no UV, no mechanical filtration, and letting the system handle the waste. Once the training wheels come off and the tank has momentum, you can regulate the levels of waste by how much you feed. Energy in gets consumed you kind of know what comes out in your protein skimmer and water changes are reserved for when you need them. Otherwise it doesn't change the, the quality of the inhabitants life in the tank. It's not part of the, the regular toolkit. Um, as far as ICP testing, we, I became his distributor distributor in the U S around 2015. I'm still the U S distributor. And, uh, last year we built the lab here. So until last year, we started sending all the ICP tests to Germany, and it would take seven to ten years. <laughs> seven to ten days. Se- seemed like seven to ten years, right? That was <laughs> <laughs> <How's> a slip. <laughs> so now it's, um, we literally test the day we-, we receive them. We give ourselves 48 hours to turn the tests around because sometimes we get more tests than we can-, we can process. But even if you're not running the Triton method, just knowing what's in your water, knowing how things are deviating, like people that run no pox you don't realize that you're adding a lot of molybdenum. Molybdenum goes really, really high. Uh, When we first brought Triton into the U.S., there were so many corrections to manufacturers' products, like the Thrive line, where everything was in aluminum bottles. There was aluminum in everybody's tanks. Um, The ceramic biomedia blocks, everybody that ran those had a high aluminum. Uh, New new setups um, with PVC all had a high tin. Uh, Karen Britton in the Hawaiian Islands, she couldn't get fish. Larval fish to get past a certain date. We did an ICP test. Turns out she had very high zinc. It was some bolts in the bottom of her tanks, where the epoxy coating had gone away, and the zinc was being released and damaging the fish at a certain point in their life. So all of this anecdotal evidence um, supports that the hobby really benefits from this ICP testing. The salt manufacturers cleaned up their rack. They started buying better ingredients. Now that they knew that hobbyists were armed with a $50 test. To, to validate really what's in those products. So it definitely cleaned up the industry a little bit, and now people use it to see if there's heavy metals, their polyp extension is low, they can see what's going on. Uh, I, I could talk forever, so I'm, I'm going to stop right here.
0: <laughs> I, I, I actually just ordered an ICP test from you guys this morning, so it uh, already told me that it's on its way, so that's awesome, you know? Awesome, Got, awesome. Got to love it. Great. So, so uh, Joe, you, um, the, the coral facility there at Unique Corals is – Using Triton additive supplements, yep. but is not on the Triton system.
1: Correct? So the Triton system is, is the core seven. It's basically a four bottle mix with all the traces and, and major ions that you need your alkalinity, calcium, magnesium, and a very balanced mix. And what you do is you set the dosage rate for each bottle, you know, with a standard doser, based on your alkalinity demand to keep alkalinity stable. So let's say somebody with a hundred-gallon tank takes twenty mLs a day to maintain your alkalinity. Well, they're gonna be dosing 20 mLs of channel A, channel B, channel C, and channel D. That's gonna deliver the proper ratios of vanadium, zinc, iodine, molybdenum you know, all the the things that the corals would need. And then you can validate how far your tank is deviating. Like let's say one person has a lot of Montipora and the other person has no Montipora. They're going to use elements from the system a little bit differently. So you may need to correct. And now you can just buy that, you know, vanadium or boron or bromide or sulfate and get the water parameters in line with natural seawater. We don't tell people to chase numbers. People do get obsessed with it. They stop buying corals until they have all greens on their ICP. And the one thing that Triton does that some of the the, the others don't is we really give a behind the scenes, look at what the elements do, what anecdotal, what evidence um, is, is supported by these trace elements role in seawater and what corrections you can take to, to get your water back to, you know, where, where recommended.
0: Well, I'll tell you, it's um, you know, I've I've been keeping reef tanks for um, over 25 years. I might be close to 30, 30 years now. And um, you know, SPS dominant reef tanks and, and you know I had some very successful uh, tanks with uh, without a lot of testing, but um, yep. you know it's it's a, a lot of it is kind of flying blind. You know yep. a lot of it though is also observation, and I've talked about this with other guests on, on prior shows, and in, in that how important it is to be looking at your tank to see mm-hmm. whether or not things are um, you know looking okay. If if things are starting to look a little um, funky. Then like you mentioned it's a great thing it's a great tool to be able to order an ICP test and just have the precise um, perspective of what is going on with the tank and how you could potentially um, you know correct any problems so it, it, yeah. it is a good thing and I never even thought it in terms of how it could keep the industry honest in in the uh, you know with the salt yeah. mixes and all that stuff that's that's an, an awesome point um, yeah I'm just looking to see if we have any um Questions from the uh, from the viewers here. Uh,
1: Let's see. And that's a good point. I'm sorry. I'll let you go. No, no, go ahead. No, it's a good point you made about you know, like myself and people we know. A lot of people had success way before ICP. It's not needed for success. I think it increases the chances of people being successful. It's just another tool. Just like if you know you're new in the kitchen, and I give you the best. Pots and pans and recipes. doesn't mean you're going to make delicious tasting food. You know that that that's a skill. You know it doesn't matter the 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 tools you have. It's only going to make a good chef better if he has good equipment. So you still have to have a great foundational understanding of what the corals need.
0: Yeah. No. Great point. All right. So we have a quick question from Easy Tino: Is dosing on a 30 gallon tank overdoing it? I'm, I'm assuming he's talking about Triton.
1: Yeah. I. I. You know, there's two, two ways to look at that. One is your your least expensive one liter set is probably going to last you a year. Um, if you're the type of person to stay home every day and you don't mind dosing it yourself, then, man, that's, a, that's an easy way to do it. Um, you don't have to be so reliant on an RODI system, on mixing up salt, on the labor involved with it. Um, so you can remove a lot of those variables and give the corals what they need. Of course, I don't know anything about the lighting, what kind of corals you want to keep, but... <clears throat> Typical Triton customers or Triton users would be SPS-dominant SPS mixed coral tanks. Um, you know, ones that use a higher level of consumption than a softy or a low-light tank. If it was a low-light or a softy or an LPS on a 30-gallon tank, I would probably recommend just do a water change once a week. Know that your water's good. You're not going to pass a lot of water through your RODI, so your membranes and everything are going to stay relatively clean. That's probably the more economical and just easier way to do it. You change five gallons in a 30-gallon tank, you've diluted the waste and concentrated the elements and it's easy and simple. It's hard to mess up.
0: Here's some uh, more advice for easy Tina. Uh, get a bigger tank.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Everybody does it
0: anyway, right? If you Only get a bigger tank. Go bigger. And then you go take the 30 gallon your sump. There you go. And then get 100 gallon. Yeah. Then you could use Triton so, supplements. So yeah. um, All right, we have another um, question from um, a, a, a viewer in Europe. He uh, says great talk. Thanks. Uh, Niles van uh, De sure I'm mispronouncing that. (laughs) Uh, He's asking, as a U.S.-based aquaculture facility, any thoughts on how we can get those legendary named aquacultured U.S. frags from
1: the U.S. to Europe? Mm. Um, You know, we've never personally dabbled in exporting. We've always just been too darn busy with the domestic market and importing, but I can feel the itch to export, and we've gotten a lot of inquiries recently. I think you will find that corals in person do look a little different than they do on the internet. And some of those named corals are coming out of common farms that are already shipping to you guys now. So if you can track down the species and locate and identify them from the source, what farm they're coming out of or where in the, in the wild out of Australia, they're coming. The rest is coloring up, coloring, coloring them up using the right lighting and nutrient levels. You know, a lot of the colors that you see that we're pulling here in the U S are not natural in the wild. They're a product of the fluorescence from being hit with crazy amounts of, you know, superactinic lighting and manipulating the nutrient levels. And that's how we're getting these corals of fluoresce. So the true strains are not that rare, most of them, I should say. Um, so you might be better off, you know, partnering with a, with a store and trying to identify and track down some of these, instead of paying an arm and a leg to buy them as named for eggs already. But to really answer your question, I don't know who's exporting right now. Worldwide Corals might be exporting. I heard a rumor. Sea Dwelling might be exporting. Uh, if you keep checking with me, you need Corals. I think in the next six months, we probably will be exporting.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay. Yep.
1: So, um,
0: got another uh, question from EZ Tino. Running two, running two AI 16s doing SPS and LPS. It was a Father's Day gift. I'm starting slow getting back into the hobby. Uh, worldwide Corals are taking care of me here locally. Thanks. Take care. Cool. Uh, that wasn't cool. a qu- That was a comment. Um, awesome. There's good guys at Worldwide Cross.
1: Yeah, very, very friends with them.
0: So, uh, Joe, I got a question for you, and uh, I don't, I don't know if I'm putting you on the spot or not, but on your website it says that you use a variety of cutting edge growing, prom- cutting edge growth promoting techniques specific to the animals based uh, uh, animals housed within each raceway. So, can you provide more information on those cutting edge techniques in terms of growth promoting? techniques that you guys use in the coral farm?
1: It's, you know, every coral is a little different, and it has to do with knowing what lighting and parameters really complement growth the best. There's a lot of studies, and we didn't, we didn't originate this, that show, you know, by taking a, a coral and fragmenting it into a bunch of pieces and letting it grow together creates a mass much bigger than if the colony was just left alone. Um, also keeping a lot of trace elements in the water will allow new corals to heal up. Strontium is used a lot when corals are healing. So if people are fragging corals, pay attention to your strontium and molybdenum levels. Um, maybe not molybdenum, strontium. Um, also taking Acropora and not growing them vertically. You know, laying them horizontally so you have a lot more surface area exposed to the light. You'll get corallite, like axial coralites, growing up along the branch instead of just the top one. Remember, when you glue an Acropora straight up, this gets the most light. This gets kind of indirect light, especially with a centralized light source above. So just gluing that frag, it doesn't look good, but you'll get better growth that way. Uh, we pump in fresh air from outside. We were having pH issues. And as you know, as soon as you get that pH above eight one, eight two, you start to see magical things with growth. Uh, Keeping the the nutrient levels a little bit higher and the alkalinity a little bit higher along with the higher pH results in faster growth. Um, We dose amino acids and we we do heavy testing and dosing with spot traces that are low. There's nothing really magical that we do. We do things that are in any book or any good uh, hobbyist online forum. We just try to do them a little bit differently for each coral. Do you guys also um,
0: put in uh, any coral food, or is it just kind of aminos and, and the supplements uh, in terms of triton? We
1: use, we use mainly only Reefroids now. Refroidz, we do a little okay. bit of benefit, but Reefroids has been really good to us. We see really good results. We'll shut the flow down. We'll baste it right into the corals. We'll do um, broadcast feeding as well, um, but definitely a lot of, of Reefroids. It seems to be a, an all-in-one nutritional food, and then some uh, two little fishies um, amino acids we'll use. And, and um, you're
0: basically, is this for mostly the SPS or is it both both the uh, SPS and LPS, everything.
1: Everything. everything? Even the SPS do need a lot of food. LPS need more. Uh, as you know, they rely a little bit heavily on, uh, more heavily on prey capture. Especially at night, they've got those tentacles. Anything that has a, you could learn a lot by a coral by looking at its morphology. If something's a large polyp, like a Duncan coral, that's capturing prey so it needs to be fed it it needs nutrition now waterborne particulate food That's why also in Triton, we don't use particle filtration. We don't use mechanical filtration. I mean, protein skimmers, you can argue, is somewhat, it's mechanical. Um, But we want that waste to stay in the system, get coated in bacteria, not worry about it chemically hurting the tank, but the physical waste gets filtered out by a lot of the corals. There's like marine snow present in in a tank. I think people run their tanks too clean these days.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good point. I, um... I started a new tank five years ago. My current tank, 187 gallon tank, and um, yeah, I, I definitely had issues. I started with with dry rock only, and I, w- I definitely want to talk about uh, Marco rocks. And, and okay. I started with Marco rocks, and, and I'd always started my tank with with live rock. And, and okay. um, but yeah, I, uh, I bottomed out my nutrients, and it was just uh, one problem after another. But let's um, let's let's save that for a little bit later. Um, I, I wanted to come back to the um, so the pH that you just talked about and, and the fact that, um, you know, 8.1 to 8.2, you kind of get that magical point when you go past that in terms of the, uh, the growth rates for, for SPS and, and other corals. And you were talking about how you guys, um, were pumping in some air from the outside. And obviously the, um, the more you could bring in in terms of the carbon dioxide, the, uh, you know, the better, um, or, mm-hmm. or at least, uh, have that, um, um, diluted, right. In, in terms of yeah. the carbon dioxide. So, in, in, when you, you, in terms of your calcium reactors, you know, when, when you're using a calcium reactor, that's going to drive the, uh, the pH of the, uh, the effluent is going to be lower, right, because of the reaction with the carbon yeah. dioxide. So, do you guys, I, I, I didn't notice, is, are they dual chamber um, calcium reactors to help absorb so that excess CO2?
1: Yeah, it, so these are Destaco the brand calcium reactors, and we uh, we we are the importer here in the U.S. for them. We've been using them on our systems and selling them, and we love them. They work on a different principle. They don't they don't have a pH monitor. They don't have a bubble counters. They they saturate CO2 inside the first chamber, actually inside a reaction chamber, and that dissolved, saturated carbon dioxide has a pH of around 5.9, 6.0, which is the perfect pH to dissolve the pure marble media. So yes, the pH is around 6.0 inside the the belly of the beast. It's a dual chamber reactor. So when the effluent comes out, I actually haven't even tested it in years. To me I don't need to test it. Um, But it's in probably in the high sixes. So you're still getting some suppression. Uh, We like to let it drip a little bit uh, before it hits the the system. I, I feel like some of the CO2 might be driven off that way. And if the system is stable and aerated and you have a good protein skimmer and you've got good surface exchange, calcium reactors really shouldn't be the breaking point on a tank's pH. I like to think that there's other issues with ventilation, with circulation, with gas exchange where the calcium reactor effluent becomes the death blow that puts you over the edge. I remember Sanjay, well, uh, everybody knows Sanjay, uh, he got a, cal- a Destaco reactor from us a few years ago, and when he first set it up on his system, he was hitting 7.4, 7.5, he was losing corals. I thought he was gonna take it off the system. And I was a little disheartened. I'm like, well, Sanjay can't make this thing work. Man, this is not gonna do well in the field. But then he made some changes to it. I think he got some fresh air in, um, he got more surface agitation, increased the flow on the surface, and now he's at 82, 83, and he's fine, and he, and he loves it. So um, I think, you know, if you fix the other issues, the calcium reactor shouldn't be the thing to blame. But calcium reactors are, you know, very beneficial for, especially for big systems.
0: Yeah, I, I've used calcium reactors for years. Actually, right now I'm using two part, but I'm getting a um, a new display tank to uh, to add to the uh, to the system here, and I'm going to probably go with a calcium reactor. You know, I have my systems in a basement. <clears throat> and, and so it's, it's tough in terms of getting the, uh, the air in, um, into the basement. I mean, I got some windows and whatnot, so I can crack the windows in the uh, summertime and the fall time, but in the winter time that, um, is not, uh, you know, as well, convenient yeah. to be able to do that. So I have run airline tubing, you know, outside the window and just crack the windows just a little bit to try to get the, uh, you know, yeah. the, uh, the air into the, uh, the skimmer. I think another thing you can do right in terms of the, uh, the effluent, um, that could help is, is have it to drip near the uh, the intake for the protein skimmer, right? So that would uh, um, help, you know, optimize the aeration and, and um, you know, help, help drive, drive the down. CO2.
1: The, oh, yeah. Right? I worry you might get some precipitation on the pump having those heavy minerals going into the skimmer. So we don't typically recommend that, but I think you'd probably get more, uh, you'd probably drive off more of it. One thing I see that people are doing that is very smart is to put a scrubber on their skimmer and recirculate it. So you're scrubbing the scrubbed air because remember you don't need oxygen really inside the skimmer. You need air. You need surface tension for the bubbles. So if you just keep scrubbing the same air on the protein skimmer, your media will run will last that much longer and you'll get a much more positive bump with every scrub. Obviously it's gonna limit out, but you'll you'll get some real good boosts there. You know, we run apexes. And we see them on our office tanks in the city when no one's in the offices during during the weekends. The pH is noticeably higher. And then as soon as the offices fill up with people, the pH drops from all the CO two respiration. Same thing in our system on the Apex monitors. We see the pH runs higher on the weekends when less staff is there. Interesting.
0: Uh, one last question on the uh, the calcium reactors, uh, Joe. Do do you guys ever uh, find the need to run
1: a, a- a caulk reactor, you know, using calcwasser to uh, no. No, and you really shouldn't. If you're running a calcium reactor, you sh- and it's dialed in, and things are good. You should be getting equal parts of calcium carbonate, and you should not really need the boost from calcwasser. Of course, you can do it. You'll get a slightly, you know, you get a pH bump and evaporative water. It's always nice to use. A lot of old school reefers use a calcium reactor with the calcwasser, um, but we don't. We don't do that. Actually, on one of our systems, we run calcwasser. But um, that that's
0: anomaly. I used to uh, I used to do that, but um, I stopped doing it. And um, yeah, I think um, I think the dual chamber calcium reactors will uh, yeah. you know are sufficient in terms of absorbing the CO two. All right, enough questions about the uh, the calcium reactor. I got uh, <laughs> we got a bunch of questions from the um, from the viewers here. Planet three uh, D is asking Joe Capra, do you guys track the annual price of corals? If so, what was the most expensive and cheapest year to buy
1: corals? I don't have that data. I don't. I'm sorry. That's a great question. But um, if I had to guess the most expensive year, I think prices are still going up. You know, when Indonesia shut down about two, two summers ago, I think it was, it took a few months, but the prices really shot up. So I think 2019, we really saw crazy prices. Now, this year, it's weird because of COVID and stuff, and we can't even get flights. Indonesia opened up, but we can't get any flights in, so the prices are still high. So right now, I think we're still seeing peak prices, and the hobby is is hot right now, especially, you know, as an online company, we're seeing a surge in sales because people are home. They can't go out. They can't travel, so they're spending money on their home stuff. It's kind of logical. But as far as the cheapest, I think the further you go back in time, It wasn't even, you had to pay for it. All the hobby trade shows was all trading. You know, when people got together and went to a reef club, nobody sold corals. In in the late 90s, everything was trading. So everybody had their genetics and everyone's tank. And if your tank crashed, everybody gave you frags back. Uh, Those were some really great times. And I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to be a part of some of those trading sessions where you just didn't charge. If you did, you charged five bucks, whatever, I mean. It was a different time.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, you you bring up a great point in terms of, uh, you know, the old-time frag swaps and and reef clubs. Those are are such important events and and events like reef of palooza today. Those are, um, you know, um, reef, uh, you know, frag swaps on steroids. I mean, there's just so many people and vendors and and, um, folks that attend those things. But... I always say that, um, you know, frag swaps, just with a local frag swap, it's, it's, just, it's an awesome thing for people as a learning experience. You know, not, it's not only for people that have been in the hobby for years and years and, and can uh, swap frags, which is awesome. And I used to do that and it was a lot of fun, but it's also for yeah. people to like learn um, a yeah. lot to, from experience hobbyists. So those are those are great things. And and hopefully those will um, continue on and on and on to uh, to help serve this hobby. It's it's a um, it's a great educational experience. So um, we have a couple of uh, other comments from K-Dub. What's up there, K-Dub? Didn't see in the live stream earlier tonight, but uh, welcome back here. K-Dub or C-Dub? I I see it's K-Dub. K-Dub.
1: Okay, because I know a C-Dub.
0: You know a C-Dub. <laughs> All right, so, so K-Dub's got a few comments here. Let me see if I can uh, interpret these things. Uh, he's asking, I decided to use a T-5 system with a small LED strip to supplement. Do you think this will be acceptable for gro- growing corals, SPS and LPS?
1: Oh, heck yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a loyal army of T-5 users that will never, never dump their T-5s. I mean, some of the best tanks I've seen were t 5 I think if you can give a little bit of supplemental actinic you know, precision pop with some diodes that, you, you know, that are super actinic, I mean, that's the best of both worlds. We're really seeing like the T5 hybrid fixtures where you have double flanked T5s and then the LED of your choice in the middle. I think that's, um, that's, that's, that's just an amazing thing right there. Yeah.
0: And from, from my new tank, uh, I've, I've always used metal halides. I've never had, um, that's, you know, four and a watt 20 K metal halides. I'm old school. Yep. I've never gone LEDs, but for the new tank, I'm going to be using LEDs. And, and, um, you know, I've been looking at those, uh, hybrid fixtures in terms of the T fives yep. and the LEDs. And that definitely certainly seems like the best of uh, both worlds in terms of getting the, um, you know, the, the, the color growing, um, uh, part of the LEDs and, 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 and you know, the spread with the uh, t
1: so. Yeah. That's what you really benefit with the T5s, is that soft, balanced, full tank, full lighting, which is hard to get from LEDs, but it's not impossible. You know, I love these Illumagics. Um, We're seeing really good results with them. Um, this right here, if I can deviate and show you. Oh, yeah, so this... Let's give, give us a tour there, Jill. Okay, so this is a five-foot Illumagic. There's actually two of them that go on here, but I sold one because uh, somebody needed it. So we have these bars that connect onto here. I hope you can see it. And um, this will allow you to run two at a slight angle. So there'll normally be two lights on here at a slight angle, giving me that real full blanket effect that T5s would give, but at a much bigger wattage punch with very little heat and a lot more controllability. So even though T5s are great, if you go with the right LED setup, I think... Your par numbers, everything will just, just be even greater. And I mean, there's so many great tanks now with LEDs. There's no argument anymore that LEDs are not going to produce fantastic results. There's really no reason to go with those, with the heat and the lifespan, the short lifespan of, of metal halides. I love halides too. This is my 1,200 gallon over here. Um, this tank had six 1,000 watt 20K radiums on it when it was in Manhattan. This is my show tank there. Oh, that's uh, the show. That.
0: That's a show tank from yeah. Manhattan Aquariums. Yep.
1: Holy smokes, man! You moved it out to California? I moved it out here because we needed the space. Holy So mackerel. this is five feet, five feet front to back. I used to love that. High. I used to love
0: looking at that tank.
1: Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I got the Abyss pump. I had Advanced Acrylic make a, a custom wet dry. This is actually going to be an Amazonian. I'm really into freshwater too. So at my house, I didn't want to go crazy on the maintenance. Um, So this is going to be an Amazonian tank with some natural sunlight, cardinal tetras, all kinds of rare stuff, beautiful pieces of driftwood. And then these are some freshwater biotopes that uh, are all kind of sleek. I hid the lighting. These are the uh, uh, Kessel lights. I built this out of uh, white acrylic, and then I sunk the wire into the acrylic, and I threaded it and mounted it into the sheetrock. So it's nice and strong, and my controllability is here. So I could adjust the spectrum, you know, if I want to make it blue. And um, all the filtration is going to be behind the wall. I put in bulkheads here. So these green is just for test. I have clear acrylic that's going to be bent. So this is all clear. It's the Hydro Wizard pump here, which is a badass pump. And um, some really cool biotopes. And then I want to show you guys this one. This is an antique tank from uh, the the mid-1800s. This is a JW Fisk, Uh, he was an iron worker in Manhattan and he was commissioned to make a bunch of these these bronze uh, bronze tanks. So I had Trent at Custom uh, uh, Crystal Dynamics redo the whole thing for me. He stripped off all the paint, we took out the glass, he built new glass inside it, we epoxy coated the bottom. I have to figure out what I wanna do with these, these weird iron fittings here. Um, I kind of want to keep it somewhat era specific. I don't want a big hang on filter or Eheim thing, So I might just do an airline, an airstone, And um, I'm reading some old books from the 1900s, just to see what they were doing back then. Aquarium inhabitants management. So I'll probably go with some white clouds and paradise fish, maybe some anacaris or elodea, and just keep it really simple. And uh, this is my water box. Reef, this is all Marco Rocks with that really cool ledge. Awesome. And connected to it is another water box tank that is gonna have a four-foot mangrove in it. And the mangrove is actually outside, it's growing. And then I drilled it here so I could have a fixed water level about six inches from the top. So I don't have to worry about fish jumping. And this will be a Caribbean mangrove that's gonna run outside and connect onto this filter. So you can see where I'm going with it, but um you know, it just takes a while, and uh, I want it done right, and uh, I don't mind if it takes another six months. Yeah, I was going to ask you, when, when are you going to see a war hitting those tanks? <laughs> well, you know, my kids, I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old, mm, and they've been home it. with us since March. Yeah. And we have no help. Um, not that we need help, but my wife and I are trying to work and keep the kids sane and, and peace in the house. Um, and all the parks are closed. Everything's closed. The zoo's closed. The beaches are closed. So it's this room has to wait. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, I, you, you don't have to yeah. explain it. As soon as you said that, uh, you know, yeah, it, it totally yeah. makes sense. But um, no laws, nothing there. Everyone's afraid. Everyone's home. <laughs> um, K Dubs is saying, tell him his rock structure looks like an Imperial Star Destroyer.
1: Looks awesome. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. Everyone says that. In fact, when I put one rock on the top, like if I put one more up here, this is the command post right here. I'll do it for K Dub right there. Sweet. There's your, there's your imperial destroyer. Sweet. <laughs> so, so Joe, it's uh,
0: it's it's getting close to uh, to eight o'clock my time and five o'clock your time. We haven't really talked about Marco Rocks. Uh, do you have a few more okay. minutes to uh, to chat about Marco Rocks? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, so yeah go ahead yeah no i mean i i was using the product for many 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 years most of our setups would have uh i mean first it was live rock then we would do the dry marco um we did real reef too um but i became friends with the owner mark and uh, there was an, a, uh, an option to join the company uh one of the partners wanted out so i said you know what screw it let's do it so uh, a couple years ago we got in to, involved with that and um we've made some new products and um the, the rock is just very popular. It's a, no frills, dry rock. You have to treat it like dry rock. You know, If you stick it in a tank and run your phosphates high, you're going to have algae blooms. But what you get in return is a low price point and a rock that looks like live rock um, once you get it through the ugly phase. And I think people are realizing that there's no fast way to cycle a tank and your rock structure should be porous and it should be aragonite based. And that's what you get from this. You get a natural Porous, it's a fossilized coral reef, it's calcium carbonate, it leaves a white limestone residue in your hands, and it's super porous. And those are the two main things that you want in your rock structure. You know, looks, aesthetics, um, those are obviously important, but from a biological standpoint, you, you really can't beat pure calcium based rock. You do need to supplement with some bacteria. I am a big believer in the uh, the beneficial boost of live rock and all the inhabitants that come in on it, I think a lot of the success in our industry really got a, a jump start uh, when we started bringing in live rock. But personally, I don't really like to bring in live rock. I, I don't trust the sources that you know, reefs weren't blown up to get it. So I'd rather, you know, we, we figure out how to make dry rock the best we can. And there's some really good products on the market now that speed up the life cycle. And if you're adding corals and adding, you know, zoanthid rocks, things with live rock on it, you will seed your tank. It might take a little bit longer, but you will get an established colony of, uh, of good bacteria over time.
0: Yeah. Like, like I mentioned, you know, I started, um, my, my current reef with live or dry rock for the first time ever. And, um, you know, it, it, it was too sterile and I did use a, um, a, a bacteria boosting product, but, um, talk, talk a little bit more in terms of what you guys recommend that, uh, you use for, you know, specifically products in, in terms of the uh, bacteria boosters or, um, you know, you talked about seeding with a little, uh, live rock. I mean, it, it, it does take longer with dry rock tanks to, yeah. to get it established and to be able to um, start really growing uh, SPS. But specifically, what do you guys recommend for a market? rock? I've been rock using the Fritz. Uh, I'll
1: actually show you. I have a bottle right here. Taking one second. This is the Fritz Turbo Nine Hundred. Yep. Uh, this is good stuff. It uh, comes refrigerated, really cold. It only has like a three-month shelf life, but that's got a lot of good bacteria in it. And um, Lab makes a really good bacteria product. Blightwell makes a good product. Uh, Dr. Tim's we've used before. Um, I'm not, um, I don't have any real favorites. If I had to turn to one right now, I've been using the Fritz and it's been, it's doing well. Of course, I don't, I don't really compare and do isolate, you know, isolate to see which one is doing better. So I'm just shooting from the hip. But, um, I think any of the good brands on the market right now are going to deliver pretty good results and just patience. Um, if you, if you have the patients just cycle the tank, put a UV on the tank, BRS just did that study. They ran a bunch of tanks with Marco rocks, some with UV, some with the UV with high flow, some with UV with low flow, some without a UV. And they saw the differences in the algae growth and uh, species that grew in the tank as it was maturing and hands down the tank with high flow UV on a tank that was cycling had the least amount of nuisance algae that grew. Uh, obviously when, when you, dose of bacteria. You don't want your UV to be on.
0: Yeah. You just answered a, uh, a question from K Dub about, uh, UV sterilizers. He was, he was asking whether or not, uh, you guys use them. So it sounds like, uh, in certain instances that, uh,
1: you, you would, you would
0: util- utilize a UV.
1: Yeah. You know, I've always, um, I've kind of oscillated over the years back and forth. I've had them have it. I've had big units on systems that still got nasty fish parasites. And then when I got introduced to Triton and, uh, reducing variables, it kinda of made sense because most of the reef tanks I've ever made I've ever had personally never had UVs. I knew the fish's health was largely dependent on not being overcrowded, the fish not being stressed, and feeding them properly and having a strong immune system. That's your that's eighty percent of your battle against nuisance you know parasites the uv is just going to help a little bit but it's not going to keep sick fish healthy it's definitely not right right in a reef tank there's arguments that it's constantly killing things it is killing things in the water column it's rendering anything that passes through it sterile it can't reproduce if it's exposed to enough uv radiation thankfully if you run it through high flow we're really only targeting the real small microorganisms um and uh, your water will be a little bit clearer. Your redox might be a little bit higher, and you probably get a little bit less dinos in the tank and less nuisance algae. So I, I'm I'm for doing UV. I think if installed properly, it'll help you. Uh, should it be run twenty four seven or at night? Uh, any particular schedule for a UV? I think in the beginning when you're stocking a tank, so there's two ways to do it. You really it's all about flow, flow and wattage. It's I mean, same UV with different flow is a completely different beast. When you're cycling a tank in the beginning, I would run high flow to really keep the waste levels the the algae at bay. Then when you're starting to stock the tank with fish, dial the UV all the way down to a flow rate of whatever 10 to 15 gallons per hour per watt. That's the right uh, dwell time to kill cryptocaryon, odinium, some of those nasty parasites. Even if it doesn't eradicate them completely, it's going to knock their numbers down and at least give the fish a longer chance to fight it off with their immune system. And then once the tank is stocked with fish and they're fat and healthy, you can almost take it offline and save the bulb until you need it. I mean, if the tank is running great, kind of like a train with momentum, you can take your foot off the gas, just let the thing coast.
0: Yeah, I've, I've done that with UV. I've, uh, I've used it just to kind of like, um, spot treat certain uh, issues, bacterial blooms, what have you. And then I put it in the closet or, um, yep. you know, on the shelf. Um, you know, and, and the schedule question that I just asked before in terms of, um, you know, running the UV, that reminded me of another question that I forgot to ask you about the, um, um, coral, uh, foods. You, you mentioned, um, you guys use some of the, um, what, what did you guys, uh, in terms of the coral foods, I know you, uh, you mentioned, uh, is it right, right. Reefroids. Is that, um, yeah. something that you feed, um, when the lights are out or does it matter in terms of whether the lights are on feeding that, uh, reefroids.
1: So in truth, my staff is there when the lights are on. So they feed when the lights are on, yeah. but in a perfect world, you'd want to first put a little bit of food in to get a polyp response. Yep. Then after 20, 30 minutes, shut the flow and just shut the uh, the exchange between your filtration and your tank and just run your circulation pumps within the tank so the foods moving around then broadcast feed and if you do that effectively the water is moving within the aquarium the Corals are going to be feeding on all of that that food when their polyps are exposed and that they you'll get the best response at night. That's when corals shift from a photosynthetic feed mode to a prey capture. So if you can do it at night, you know, ten o'clock at night, if your lights go off at nine, maybe just a little bit of dim blue, tickle the tank with a little bit of food first. If you can get into that routine, man, the corals will really, really thank you. Yeah. No, thank you. We didn't talk about Pax Bellums. We've got six Pax Bellums we're about to install on all of our raceways too, with nutrient export, and we're going to be selling the Cato Morpha from it. And there'll be a C36 Pax Bellum going on this system. I'm probably going to put it outside because we're in sunny California, so why not keep keep the equipment outside, even though it's a it's a sexy piece of equipment.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know Pax Bellums. Of i I've, uh, I've run. Uh, Tristan's uh, algae reactors—they're awesome. I mean, they're yep. um, they're supercharged in terms of being able to, uh, you know, get your nutrients down. And but the beauty of those uh, units is that they're so controllable, right? In terms of the, yep. uh, you know, adjusting the uh, the light cycle. But um, yeah, that's it, it, a
1: great way in terms of uh, exporting uh, nutrients. Well, um, and you get your pH higher, too. You, know, you run it on a reverse photo period, right. and you reload. You can add it to an existing system if you don't have room for a typical refugium, much smaller footprint with a higher yield of nutrient export, and um, you'll, you'll definitely see a pH bump, because you're scavenging all that CO2 for the algae from the water column, not from the surface like in an algae scrubber. Right. Um,
0: I'm going to circle back to uh, Marco Rocks again, and I'm going to ask you a couple of uh, rapid fire questions, and we'll wrap it up. How yep. does that sound, Joe? Um, Perfect. So, I, I, you know, in, in terms of what I saw in your, uh, your tank there in, in your uh, home, um, I don't even want to call that a home office, I don't even know what you want to call that, that's, uh, yeah. that, that's the, the, the home fish room, let's call it, but yeah. um, was that the uh, Little Fishies uh, Stacks uh, rock that was in that tank?
1: No, it's not. So, the Stacks rock is a two-sided cut rock that we actually produce for two Little Fishies. So, we take it and it's cut, you know, reef saver rock is cut twice to produce a slab of rock. This rock over here is only cut once. So the bottom of it is flat and that's what we call foundation rock. Okay. So this just sits perfectly on the bottom of a tank. And I think for best results, if you take a little piece of silicone and put a couple of dabs just to elevate it off the ground, you'll get even better water flow and you don't even have rock touching glass. You just have like a silicone, little rubber mat or something. But so that gives you a really firm foundation. It doesn't jiggle like a, you know, a typical amorphic shaped rock will. So I use foundation rock down here. And then this is the premium shelf. This is our, sh- our shelf rock. It's beautiful stuff. Um, and then we, I cemented it together with the E-Marco 400, yep. which is a product that we've had for a long time. And then a Panoray in here, which is going to be way too much flow, but I just did it just because.
0: <laughs> just because.
1: Just because I'll probably I'll probably pull it out and put the ECM 42 which is uh, the one that's in the six-foot tank
0: Oh, sweet. So um, on the last episode, uh, I my guest was was uh, Greg Carroll and we were talking about um, You know your your aquascape you aquascaped his uh, tank with Marco rocks Um, You want to just talk briefly about uh, aquascaping some tips and tricks for some folks
1: sure Um, something I tell everybody is it's, it's human nature to fall in love with whatever it is you're doing. So when you're aquascaping a tank, your eye wants to see the finished result. It's human nature. However, this is like trying to fall in love with the foundation of your house. The house goes on top of the foundation. The foundation's in the ground. Your rock work is the foundation of your reef tank. Your corals go on top of the rock. Some of them in crusts, but most corals are going to grow up and out of the rock and eventually die and create the rock of the future. So if you want your finished, if you want your finished product to somewhat be visible and have four or five, six inches of water above the reef structure, so fish consume above it, then your rock needs to be X amount of inches lower, depending on what kind of corals you want to go with. With the technology and the lighting we have these days, with staghorns, within a year or two, your, your stag frags are gonna be a, you know, eight inches, 10 inches. So don't think, well, my corals probably won't grow that fast, they will. And most people regret that they put too much rock in the tank or they went too high because every rock you put in is using up water space and space to have fish and corals. So, you know, we do have a a rough calculation of how many pounds of rock supports the biological needs of a tank, but now with the – external filters we have in the ceramic media blocks and the pex bellums we don't really need to be so reliant on the surface area of the biological rock itself you know the, the old berlin method days so i would strip it down and do a minimal amount of rock create different bombies definitely don't stack your rocks in the back of the tank like people used to leave access all around to run your magnet and for water to move and um don't make it um, don't make two mounds of the same height. I, I the, the, eye likes to see one, one mound be higher for contrast and it just creates a real nice juxtaposition in, in, the tank. And remember too, if your lights are, you know, at the center of the tank, the corals grow up into the light. So as the corals grow, you're going to see the undersides of it. I remember Sanjay saying once his lights are in the middle of the tank, the corals grew so much into the lights his view was the undersides of all the corals. <laughs> so now he keeps the lights a little bit forward and angled at the front of the tank, and the corals grow into the light, giving him a nice display. So those are some some, some tricks I would recommend.
0: Yeah, I mean, ba- back in the day, it used to be the the uh, the standard used to be, I think, two pounds of live rock per gallon. So, you know, that was like a lot of rock for a tank. And, oh, and brick walls were a common thing back, yeah. uh, back a number of years <laughs> yeah. ago. All right, Joe. Stack I'm- it up. Yeah, some uh, rapid-fire questions for you. I'm going to wrap it up here. So uh, what is your favorite SPS coral?
1: Uh, The Solomon Islands Purple Monster, which we are going to hunt for once we get back in the water over there. I got
0: a frag of that right now that's growing out, but that is one of my favorites. That and the Oregon Blue Tort.
1: Favorite LPS coral? Uh, Favorite LPS. Probably an Oregon's coral. Okay. Hard to beat a beautiful... Elegance coral, Pink tip, beautiful. I mean, it has it all.
0: Okay. Favorite fish?
1: Achilles tank.
0: Mm, interesting. Uh, yep. Dream tank, is it already there in your room?
1: If my wife is watching, yes. <laughs> <laughs> if she's not watching, no. <laughs> Good answer. Be a big one day. <laughs>
0: all right, Joe, man. Thank you so much for being a guest. This was a lot of fun. And um, any, uh, any final thoughts before we wrap it up?
1: No, just keep it simple, um, get your hand out of the tank. There is one piece of anecdotal evidence I wanna, I wanna share with you guys. When Jim Welsh was working on his Trident several years ago, before it was the Trident, you know, he partnered with, with Apex. Um, he came to me in and, and our hotel room at Magnon, and he was going over some of the anecdotal discoveries. And one of the things was that when he started testing his alkalinity every hour, he noticed that it was very consistent day after day. But when he'd stick his hand in his tank, Oh, and he'd frag a coral, the alkalinity went up. Even though he was dosing the same, there was some kind of environmental stressor going on in the tank, whether it was coral slime or finger slime or something, that told all the corals to stop using minerals that day, well, for six hours, and stop their growth. So I think if you keep sticking your hand in there and you frag corals and you move stuff around, we're just starting to understand the effects of the stress on the animals in the aquarium, Um, you know, getting back to Triton and keeping it holistic and just letting it grow. You know, the less we do to the tank, the better. Um, But certainly you have to do your maintenance. So try to develop a plan that matches you like Zeovit is not for everybody. You're riding on the edge, like redlining an engine. So pick a method that, mates well to your lifestyle, the amount of hours you can spend on that tank every day. You might not have crazy pastel corals, but at least you have a reef tank you can be proud of and that won't drive you crazy at night. No, that's so that's, that's,
0: that's a, great advice. Cool. All right, Joe, man, thanks again for, uh, for being a guest. So my next show is going to be Thursday, July 16th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and my guest will be Moki Chow, who is also known as the inappropriate reefer. I don't know, Joe, do you know uh, Moki? I, 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 I know of him. I, I, I know of him. He's got Absolutely. a huge social media following. So yeah. um, I'm going to learn a lot about, uh, about that yeah. stuff when, when I have him on the show next week. But uh, okay. he will be my guest next week. I'm psyched for that. But uh, Joe, th- thanks again, Joe. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and sharing your thoughts and, and uh, knowledge. It was very educational for sure. Cool. So until then, everybody, uh, stay safe, be well, and we'll see you next time.